The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give thanks to you, your God over all. You have always reigned as sovereign over your world. You do so at this very moment. And today, as we have prayed and sung and we'll continue to think about, there is a great coming day when your sovereign might will be clear to all. You have never been less than sovereign, but you will be clearly seen to be that by all one glorious day. When you come to settle all accounts and to be marveled at by your people. And after that day, there will be a long, eternal, glorious day. And in that coming great eternal day, we who are your people will know you increasingly deeply and wide, widely and, and, and in increasingly glorious, beautiful ways. We will see your sovereign might and we will see your sweet love. We will see your wisdom. And we will enjoy you forever. This has been won for us by Jesus, planned for us, eternity past by you, and we say thank you. And we ask you now to, this morning, open up the scriptures and help us to understand that day, the eternal day, understand it a little bit more, to marvel at it a little bit more, to rest in it, and to long for it. So control our minds. Father, would you commission your Holy Spirit, would you send him to run among us here this morning and as was prayed, to lead us in confession, to remove any sin that, that abides in us that would be a hindrance to hearing your word. Would you send him among us to illumine our minds and to make us quick in our thinking and attentive in our listening? Send him to make the scripture clear and to direct my speaking. I would say what is true. We want to speak the truth and to hear the truth and to know the truth and to worship the truth. That would be for our good and for your great glory. So would you do that this morning? Father, Son, and Spirit, control this time. Have your way with it, with us. Bless us here this morning, please, and honor your name. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Given that this weekend is the men's retreat, I'm not going to press ahead in our study of the Gospel of Luke, but instead I'm going to preach something uh, extremely similar to what I talked about yesterday morning at the camp, and it relates a little bit to what I talked about Friday night at the camp. So if you have friends coming back from the retreat, perhaps you can have conversation later this afternoon having some common information. That's what's going to take us to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 the second to last page of God's word to us. The book of Revelation is the final book in the Bible for several reasons. 
It was, it's, it's printed, obviously, it's printed last in our English translation, so it's, it's, it's the end in that sense, but it's also the last book written in the New Testament, written by the Apostle John sometime in the early 90s AD, so it's last in its writing, and it deals with the last things. It deals with end things, so it's last in its material as well. A number of ways it belongs at the end, but it has much to guide us in the present as we live now. That becomes clear, especially at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, if you were to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3, which I preached a few years back, and you can find that on the website if you'd like. But the first three chapters of the book deal with letters written to particular churches scattered throughout what is now modern Turkey. Raises issues and consistently calls each of those churches to, per, to persevere in faithful holding on to Christ. And it's all kinds of trouble, various issues, but it intends to, and then explicitly works to, throughout the rest of the book, draw out encouragement and strength for that faithful persevering, to draw it out by showing the truth of the gospel and the awesome reality of the coming return of Christ and his deliverance of his people and his judgment of all that is against him. That's elaborated on throughout the book, and by the time we come to our chapter, our passage in chapter 21, verse 9 is where I will be beginning. By the time we get to this point, the revelation has already shown, throughout this book, has already shown the return of Christ and has already shown John what the judgment looks like. With all of its, its extremely tumultuous uh, incidences, it's already happened by this time. So the day is past, and we are now into the day. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, depict for us, and, and Charlie earlier read from a couple of those verses, the coming, John sees the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, and that passage then, 1 through 8, is expanded on. It's, it's kind of restated and expanded on in what we'll be reading and looking at today. So I'm going to read chapter 22, 21, verse 9, all the way through 22, verse 5. And as I do, a thousand questions are going to come up. My approach is I'm going to make four observations from this passage, and I hope to answer most of the important questions as I develop the observations. So there's going to be, because there's so much information here, perhaps the sermon this morning is going to have a little bit more of a leaning on explaining things. But there will be application if you're listening throughout, and particularly the last point is going to address what do we do with this. So I'm going to read this whole passage, and as the questions arise, know that I, I do intend to address them as I un, unpack the four observations that I'll make from the passage. All of it together is going to work towards this one point. Here's my main point for this morning. When it is all over, God's faithful ones will live with him in the city that is his and our sanctuary. I'll say that several more times. When it is all over, God's faithful ones will live with him in the city that is his and our sanctuary. At the end, when it's all over, faithful ones will live with him in the city that's his and our sanctuary. So, 
That's what I'm working towards this morning. Let me read, beginning in chapter 21, verse 9, all the way through 22.5. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, it's the Apostle John, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by hand measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first with jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, transparent as glass." And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And we could say amen and close in prayer, but we won't. I'll make four observations, and here's the first one. After it is all over, there is a city. After it is all over, there is a city. Chapter 21, verse 6, which is, as I said, the lead into this passage, has one seated on the throne, the Alpha and the Omega, God himself, and he says to John, it is done which sounds similar to, but is more emphatic than Jesus' statement on the cross, it is finished. Jesus, when he says it is finished on the cross, is talking about redemption has been accomplished. Well, here what he means is it is all over. Redemption that was accomplished, finished on the cross, still needed to be applied throughout, we now know, centuries. Well, here we are at the end of all that. It is all done. Everything that was promised, everything that was looked forward to, everything that was expected has come. There is no more one day. There is no more already but not yet. There is, can you imagine this? There is a point in time when existence as we have known it, looking forward to future change and development and and a hope that isn't yet but is coming there's going to be a day when that whole way of life ceases because it is all here it is almost impossible to imagine that I'm, I'm talking to you, you can conceptualize it but you can't imagine what it is like to live in that state because we are always looking forward Done. It is done, he said. And what is there at the end is a city. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls with seven plagues came and spoke to John. He's referring to plagues and bowls, referring to things that happened earlier in the book as God poured out his judgment. And the angel is described in this way. If we were to read a little bit wider, we would realize That's there to remind us, oh, John's already met this angel back in chapter 17. Same angel described similarly. And in a very similar passage, if we were to read 17, 18, we'd notice, oh, and John's already been shown a city by this angel. A totally different city. The city of Babylon. He showed him wicked Babylon, showed him God's judgment poured out on wicked Babylon, And now the angel comes to John again to show him something else. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. This whole book, obviously, this passage is full of symbolism, and there's one. Great high mountains are places where God reveals to his people good things. Carries him away to a great high mountain and is about to show him something the bride, the wife of the Lamb. A good vision, 
the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. As we see it described there, we realize this city kind of has a dual reality. It's, it's a people. It's the bride. It's Christians. But it's a city. It's a place. Well, that's not dissimilar from how Babylon was also described, and that's not very dissimilar from how we think about places, too. We can talk about Salt Lake and mean Salt Lake, in my neck of the woods, Salt Lake ends at 3300 South. And I might also say Salt Lake really loves its ice cream. I'm talking about the people and the place, both, same terminology. Babylon is a people and a place. The New Jerusalem is a people and a place. Got a dual reality here. This great city is the bride, and it is described in tangible ways, pictured for us so that we can get some idea about what the nature of this, perhaps we might use the word community, is like, this people place. And as he talks about this city from a great high mountain, as he begins to describe it measured out, One thing that we perhaps don't realize but need to grasp here at this first point is that John didn't come up with this out of whole cloth right here in Revelation 21. Indeed, the angel brought him and showed him something. But if you'd been at the retreat and if we had just spoken on Friday night, you would have realized this is straight out of the book of Ezekiel. So turn back to the book of Ezekiel. As you're turning there, Ezekiel was a prophet, and his whole ministry, the whole book of Ezekiel for him, if you get the major prophets, you've got Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel after that, Lamentations in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet who exists in Babylon, carried away from Jerusalem in one of the first deportations. Babylon, the great power, came to destroy wicked Jerusalem, wicked Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, came to destroy them and hoped to not have to utterly wipe them out, hoped to kind of bring them in line by carrying away some of the elite, some of the leadership. So they took people away and hoped that would be good enough, and it wasn't. So eventually they had to wipe out the city. But In one of the early deportations, Ezekiel, who was a priest, is carried away to Babylon, and the whole book of Ezekiel is him in Babylon, about the same time that Jeremiah is in Judah, in Jerusalem. They're contemporaries. He's existing there, talking about, most of the book, about how God is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Not the holy city of Jerusalem, the wicked city of Jerusalem. Much of the book can consists of him saying that again and again and depicting it and showing it, and then it finally happens. And eventually, as you work through the book, there is a change of subject matter at chapter 40. And the whole rest, 40 through 48, is one unified vision. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, then. Let's read just a couple of verses so we can understand more of what's going on in Revelation. 40 verse 1, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, that is, on the anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem, 
the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. After a judgment of a wicked city, in a vision from a mountain, he sees something like a city. Sounded all familiar. And he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. Skip down to verse 5. Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. And the man with the measuring reed begins to measure out the thickness and the height of the wall. Verse 5. And the gate and the threshold. Verse 6. Measuring. It's a very common, in the Bible, very common symbol for control over something and and a securing of something because a a landowner measures something that he safely possesses and is in charge of to to govern and, and reconfigure if he or she so pleases. Measuring shows control and it even safety. Begins to measure out everything here. A man with a measuring rod and walls and gates and threshold thresholds of what looked like a city, but did you catch it? When Ezekiel's taken there, it's called a temple. I saw what looked like a city to the south, end of verse 2, and he took me there, and he measured the temple, verse 5. It's a city temple in Ezekiel. Something he, being a priest, would understand, would see the importance of God in the temple. He would, he would resonate with that. It would grip him. And much of the rest of his vision is concerned with temple. And then it ends, very end, the last sentence of the book of Ezekiel. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The name of the city is, the Lord is there, like in the temple. Ezekiel is shown in a vision from a high mountain, a city temple, which should make us think of Revelation, or rather, Revelation should make us think of Ezekiel. What we are finding here, and what we're going to see as we develop chapters 21 into 22 in Revelation, is that the city that we are looking at is a city of fulfillment. It did not begin here. It began a long time ago. And what Ezekiel saw, what God promised to him, this city that I'm going to build and I'm going to secure and I'm going to bring my people back to from exile and cause them to dwell there and me with them, that promise is has now come here at the end. John's city, temple, is Ezekiel's temple city. There's a strong connection here. God has kept his thousands of year old word. He built the city like he said he would. What's the city like? That takes us to the second point. All that we've seen so far is at the end, there is a city. The new Jerusalem, the people of God, the bride. 
and it is a massive, glorious place. Back in Revelation 21, here's the second point. This city is great. This city is great. Now, some of us like cities and some of us hate them. Some would rather live in the mountains or out in the middle of nowhere. Some really like urban areas. All of us who are Christians, every single one of us, will love this city. You will love it because it is great. Verse 11 describes this city as having the glory of God. The complete, full, brilliant wonderfulness of God. Think of glory like that. Complete, full, not partial, not halfway, widespread and filled up. Complete, full, It lacks nothing. It is brilliant. It is brilliant in appearance and it is brilliant in substance. It is all of the wonderfulness that is God. And God is everything wonderful. All that is good is God. And it is good in fullness and in breadth. Glory. The glory of God is on, in, through, over, around this city. And it is massive. Verses 12 and following replicate, as best John can, Ezekiel's vision of measuring out and and governing all that place. He describes something of its measurement and something of its construction, trying to put into human words what is impossible, frankly. He can't describe it, but he tries. Describing a city like cities of that day, all cities in that day had walls around them. If you didn't have a wall, you got destroyed. So every city that existed had a wall for protection. And big walls, high and thick, signified safety and security. Decorated walls, wealth. This is a great city. Safe, secure, powerful, wealthy A great high wall with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And like in Ezekiel, on each gate the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And each wall had 12 foundations. Walls would have been built on massive foundation stones to prevent them from being undermined. This city has 12 massive foundation stones all around its perimeter. And on those 12 foundations are written the names of the 12 apostles. Lots of twelves. One of the numbers of perfection in the Bible. Seven, another number of fullness. Take seven days, you have a week. If you take four sevens, you have a lunar cycle. And you take 12 of them, you have a whole year. It's, it's very hard to say why God picked 12 and why God picked seven and why he built the world like that. He could have done it any way he wanted to. But he did it in this way. And he created 12 tribes in Israel. And then when he reconstituted faithful Israel, he called out 12 apostles. The new faithful Israel. And there had to be 12. You might remember from the book of Acts, chapter 1. There were two candidates to fill Judas' spot. Two. 
11 plus 2 does not make 12, so they had to get rid of one of them. But why don't I take the two guys? Why not hire them both? They're both good. They needed 12. 12 is, in God's mind, the right and full number, the, the perfect number. And here's 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, all over this place. The 12 gates with the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 foundations of the apostles. This city is built on the foundation of the apostles. And how you get into it is by being a true son of Abraham. You can't get in any other way. You must be a child of Abraham to get into the city that's built on the foundation of the new faithful Israel, the apostles. The city lies four square, verse 16. 12,000 stadia. There's another 12 multiplied by another very common number for a lot, a thousand. 12,000 stadia. Wide, long, and high. It's important. 12,000 stadia. Again, the symbolism is very heavy here. And symbolism, don't, don't misunderstand. Symbolism is not just people making up stuff. Symbolism is a way that's designed to, to picture something in maybe an evocative or, or maybe a, a creative way that is, in fact, real. There's a point to it. 12,000 stadia, not only is the perfect number times a lot, it's also very, very close to the dimension of the Roman Empire, from Spain to the Euphrates River. A detail that we miss, but they would not have. In other words, the known world. Here's a city that's the size of the world. The world. We don't know what's out there. I mean, we, we know there's something out there, but that's not the world. This is the world. The Bible commonly refers to the Roman Empire as the world. Remember how Caesar issued a census in the world? Well, he didn't put a census in China. Never mind China. The world is the Roman Empire, and here's a city that is as big as the world. A perfect cube. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. What else in the Bible is a perfect cube? Do you know? Critically. The most holy place in the temple was a perfect cube. You have all of the world, and you have Israel, and you have Jerusalem, and you have the temple courts, and you have the temple building with the holy place and the most holy place. And the most holy place alone is a perfect cube, the place where God dwells, and none of us can go on pain of death. And here is this world-sized city that is itself the most holy city, as big as the world, perfectly so. It is the sanctuary in which God dwells. We'll come to that in a bit. It has a wall of 144 cubits, 12 twelves, again. A perfect sized wall, made of pure jasper. That's actually what was shining. We read above there, it was the wall that was shining, clear as jasper. Clear as crystal, with the foundations covered in precious stones. As you read through this list of 12 stones, it's a little bit difficult to understand 
Are those exactly the same 12 stones from earlier in the Bible? You might remember 12 stones from somewhere else. Um, the breastplate of the high priest. In the Old Testament, when the high priest came into the presence of God, he carried on his body, bearing on his shoulders, 12 stones that represented the people of God. And he brought them into the presence of God as the priest. It's a little hard to know because you translate through various languages and different languages of different names for different stones, but it seems that's, that is what we are intended to think of here. The priestly stones, temple and priest, are central here, this description of the city. It is a priestly city, people, community. It is as big as the world. It has perfect size walls. It is covered with jewels. It is all marvelously inexact. But what it's trying to communicate is very clear. This is a great city. To understand that, we have to understand a little bit of what the creation is doing between us and God. Why did God create matter materially? We very often get a connection, but get it backwards. We see something like made of gold, pure gold, and we think, oh, God saw gold, pure gold, and said, Ah, that's what I will use to describe something about me or something about my city. But in fact, it's the other way around. God thinks, I want to describe something about me, about my city, about where I dwell. And I will then, to do that, I will communicate to people by making a thing that they'll call gold. And making their hearts, their minds, to look at gold. And when gold is refined and refined and refined, and it becomes clear such that you can almost see through it, they'll say, wow. And they'll say, wow. Because I want them to experience in here and in here, wow-ness. And then I'm going to grab that and say, that's like me. Or that's like my city. Or that's like where I dwell. God creates with intentionality. He doesn't use the creation backwards. This city is described in ways that make us go, wow, and make us wonder. Not just, not just with inquisition, but, but to, to marvel at. Vast size and clarity of, of materials and sparkling like crystal. Can you see the city walls just dancing with with? Jasper lining them. Can you see the foundations? Not, not dirty and, and filthy, covered with grass, or whatnot, but each with a stone on it, just sparkling, and gates that are massive, pearls. Can you see that? It's all figurative and symbolic, but it's got a real meaning to it. Glory. And think, the city is made out of gold, pure gold, clear. The walls are made out of jasper, clear. It's almost as if you can see through the city. Why is that? We'll come to that in a minute. He's grabbing things 
created things to communicate to us this is a great place. And walls that are massive, thick, and high. Security. Decked out in jewels. Wealth. Power. This is a place shot through with glory. The best city you've ever dreamed of. A city that is a temple, that is a people. It is awesome. Almost. Because while all of this is very interesting, and for some of us is is intriguing and makes us really want to dive into details and think really hard about things, and it is to a degree assuring and and encouraging to think about a city that is safe and powerful and wealthy, and that's my home. There is definite benefit in that and definite design in how God has, has described this. It want, he wants to make us think about things like that. But I have to say almost because there's something still missing. You can come at it like this. Jewels need light. To be beautiful. Temples need residence. A temple needs a resident to make any sense. There's something not quite full yet. If we only say this is a city and this is a great city because it has great walls and it has beautiful jewels on it, there's something more. That takes us to the third observation. This city is great because God is in it. The city is great because God is in it. Having depicted the physical makeup of the exterior of the city, John now tells us some of what's not there. So we see several points here about city that says temple, temple, temple. It's cube nature. It's priestly under, underlying its connection back to Ezekiel and his description of a temple there. We see lots of references to temple. And then we get, verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. An amazing sentence. The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. You recall how when Jesus walked the earth, he described how he would tear down the temple and then raise it again in three days, and people thought he was talking about a building, but he meant himself. Jesus meant, I am the temple. I'm the place where you meet God. What John's saying here, twofold. One, most importantly, There is, here's the city, there is no place within the city where God dwells. A normal city, you've got a building, it's a temple, that's where God is. Nope, there's no temple. The whole thing, the whole thing is the temple. That is, Jesus is the temple. God and the Lamb, and wherever Jesus walks, wherever he goes, he carries God there. You meet him, you meet God in Jesus Everywhere in this place. Not in one particular location that you have to go to. He is everywhere. 
Wherever the Lamb is, there is the Lord God Almighty, available for communion and worship and enjoyment. Or as verse 21, chapter 21, verse 3, this was read earlier. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with them. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God with us, not separated out separate from us. Or as Ezekiel said, the very last sentence, the name of the city is God is there. The whole place is full of him. And so shines his glory in and through it all. That's the idea of all these materials being crystal clear. The lamp says that God is the light and the lamp is the lamb. Wherever the lamb goes, the light is shining out from him. But the lamp goes over here, it still shines all through this clear city. You can see the light way over there. There's no wall to block it. You can come over here, and the light shines over there. The light always fills the whole city and sparkles off of it like it does off a crystal. It causes the jewels to dance. It fills the whole place. And there isn't any need for it. Notice it does not technically say there is no sun or moon. There is no need for sun or moon because there's plenty of light from God himself shining out of the Lamb to fill the whole place and cause it all to sparkle and gleam. In the Old Testament, again, consistently shining light was connected to the glory of God. It's the light of God's glory that caused Moses' face to glow, you'll recall. Here that light shines through this whole city and causes the place to dance. Verse 24, By this light the nations walk. It conforms and illumines and guides all the peoples of the earth. And the kings of the earth no longer, as in the previous chapters, no longer commit adultery with Babylon, but the kings of the earth now are pictured as bringing their glory into this city, flowing into it freely. Catch the imagery here. This is, this is important. Verse 25, gates never shut by day. In ancient cities, great big walls with gates that were open during the daytime for commerce and for community, but at night, for security and safety, we're closed. And there's no cameras, there's no searchlights, so you can't even see an enemy until the enemy's already come in the door. So you just close it and you don't open it again until day. This is a city where the gates are perpetually open because there is no night. There is no danger. There is no evil. Now, again, not literally, he doesn't literally mean there is no night. As we're going to see in a little bit, we'll talk about months, the, the tree bearing crops over the 12 months. Months make no sense without moon and sun. Crops make no sense without light. He doesn't mean this literally. What he means is figuratively, night is danger, night is evil, and there isn't any anymore. It's perpetual day. And as he said, the gates will never be shut by day. And it's always day. 
This is a safe place with the gates always open and the nations and their kings come in and commerce and community happens freely all the time. Now, by this point, there are not any non-Christian people left. They are left somewhere, but they are left, tragically, in hell under condemnation for eternity. There are no non-Christian people left here. So what does he mean about people coming, like, I thought the city was the people of God, what people coming in? He's picking up more imagery from the Old Testament, particularly from the book of, of Isaiah. Previously, the people of God, their enemies are the nations led by the kings that are at war against the king. And what Isaiah is talking about and what Revelation is, is getting at here is that these two groups are no longer at war, but they are in community. The nations come in. God accomplishes the Bible-long task of bringing the nations to worship him. And they come, and they come freely. The gates are open to them. There is communion between the people of the city and the people of the world. They are, in fact, one. And they bring into this city all of the glory and all of the honor of the nations, it says. I said this in some sermon some years back, and somebody corrected me. You'll see the point. I said, what language like that is supposed to make us think of is that there will be the internet in heaven. The wealth, the honor, the glory of the nations, what the nations have produced, what we have built all by God's gift, but often unbeknownst or un unreckoned by us, all that we have accomplished will be brought into and utilized forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And somebody corrected me and says, that could be the internet. It's going to be something much better than the internet. Well, that could be. The point is, the wealth, the glory, the honor of the nations is all that has been accomplished, all of human endeavor given by God, providentially given to us for the betterment of people and for the glory of God's name. Now we, we twist it, we turn it, we ruin it, we turn it to our own glory, but it will be brought in and we, as the nations walk by the light of this God, governed by it, directed by it, ruled by God's glory, in fact, everything will be sanctified and redeemed. All good things will be carried into this eternal state and used by us, used by us for the good of humanity and for the glory of God for the first time ever. Everything made by every person on earth that is good will be redeemed and brought into the next life and used as blessing, gloriously so. And best of all, God pours out for us a river that is the water of life. Chapter 22 then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing right down the middle, city, middle street of the city. This is probably the most amazing image from Ezekiel's vision. You can read about that again back in that 
end section. It's one of the several reasons that make very clear that Ezekiel is not talking about a literal temple that would be rebuilt sometime by human beings on earth. Ezekiel's river of life flows out of the temple and gets wider and wider and wider until it flows down to the Dead Sea and turns the Dead Sea to life. A little bit of imagery there. Here it is again. There's a river running down the middle of this city. And as it passes on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit standing along the banks of the river here in the middle of the garden. Did I say garden? I meant city. Or did I mean garden? Where did we last meet the tree of life? In the Garden of Eden where it gave life to people and in our sin we were exiled and kept away forever and ever and ever and ever. But there was the tree that gave life. And now what God has done is he's brought us back from exile and put us back in the garden alongside the water of life to eat from the tree its 12 seasoned fruit and to take its leaves for healing. The story has come full circle and the garden has been replanted and it's called a city, it's called a temple, it's called a people and it fills the earth, it's worldwide and it sparkles and runs with the glory of God and we are in it and we are finally home. And we eat from this tree and we are healed. Can you imagine for a minute, can you imagine for a, just a minute all of the brokenness and all the yuck and all the garbage of the world gone. No, you can't imagine it because you can't imagine it. You don't know a life like that. I mean, you can sort of imagine it because how we imagine it is we imagine it as me with a better life. That's not it. It's me and you and us with a totally new life. Not just a better one of this, new we eat from a tree. We drink from a river that flows from the temple of God. And at the end, this is what is left. A throne with a people who see his face and bow before him and worship him and reign with him over the creation as we were meant to at the very beginning be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and govern it for God's glory. We reign with him forever. That's what remains at the end, a well-watered garden with a spring whose waters never fail and a worldwide city that is a temple in itself, a temple for worship and for communion with God. It is a place of healing where it says there is no longer anything accursed. Verse 3. The end of chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing detestable or false. No evil ever again at all. It is glorious. It is glorious. A place that is safe and secure where we are free to utilize the accumulated wealth and honor of humankind's history. 
where we become fully human for the first time ever. Where we are taken up, as Paul said, and we become partakers of the divine nature. Listen to that sentence closely. We become partakers of the divine nature. We do not become divine. When you partake of beef, you do not become a cow. We, are be t we become partakers of the divine nature. God has a nature. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have been a community forever past. And we partake of that joyous, holy, pure, meaningful, deep community. We are healed. We are image bearers right and fully once again. Really for us, individually, for the first time ever. We become immortal. We live forever in this place. Deriving life from God. We are not independently immortal. We are creatures. But we will never die. That is a great city. That is a great place. And fourthly, We need to consider what to do with all this so that it doesn't just become mind candy, by which I mean something that you take in your mind, you roll around, and you do nothing with, you don't engage with. We in America, today, I don't know how far, past, how far back this would go, but at least today, we too often interact with Revelation as some sort of cool, maybe esoteric book of pictures and puzzles to be figured out, charted, and mapped. It's a game, an intellectual game. A game that we have time and room to play because we do not have the sword of Rome hanging over our heads. And we don't know anybody who's been eaten by a lion in the Colosseum recently, and we don't know anybody who's been burned alive as a human torch in the emperor's garden party. as people who received this book had known and would know. So for us, we've got a lot of space. We just think, that's a cool puzzle to figure out and work with. But for them, and for how we are supposed to receive it, it's a totally different endeavor. We could more easily understand what we are supposed to do with this section if we were in that place. We need to kind of put ourselves in that place and, and perhaps realize how we do, in fact, face some much lighter but similar challenges. But here's the point. Fourth point. It is worth persevering in faith to the end to be allowed to enter this great city. It is worth persevering in faith to the end to be allowed to enter this great city. Look again at chapter 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who conquers. A very common word throughout the book of Revelation, especially in those early letters to the churches. You must conquer 
to get into the city. And ironically, conquering means remain faithful as they kill you. That's how you conquer. Because the real battle is not the preservation of my life. The real battle is for the preservation of my soul, the preservation of my faith in Christ. That's the attack being directed by the beast, by Babylon, against the people of God. That's the, that's the real danger, the real threat, is that I would turn away. And so I conquer, I win, you conquer, you win, by holding fast, by persevering all the way to the end. And this city is presented to us like this to make us see something and say, that's worth it. And it's presented, understand even the, the genre here that presents it in such, such gripping ways and such ways that hang in your mind and, and connect to other places in the Bible and, and have physical images attached to them. It's presented in that way because the image of lion and teeth and sword is also extremely graphic. We are not just saying... There are bad people and there are good people. Go with the good people, the end. You've got a graphic, graphic, negative, threatening, fearful image. And he presents to match that and to draw us away and to show us the greatness of this and the worth of it. He shows us, as best he can in human language, a glorious, worthwhile future, a city that is worth it. It's worth persevering and holding fast to Christ to get this city. He said in Revelation chapter 3, to speaking to one of the churches, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You want this city? Conquer. That is, persevere in faith. Hold fast to Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. He lays it out very clearly. There are two paths. One leads to the city and one doesn't. This is a glorious city that is worth persevering for. So, hard-pressed, discouraged, distracted Christian. Any of those here? Persecuted or just worn out and sorrowful Christian. Christian tempted to pursue a life here and to appease those who oppose righteousness? In other words, all of us? Behold the city. A city that is worth striving for. It is worth holding unto Christ for. A city in which life will finally be yours forever.
as the kids come in. <laughs> there is a day coming, the end, when this city, this great city, this great city that is full of God and his glory, where we dwell with him, where we find from him life forevermore, there is a day coming when that will be forever yours. Hold on to him. Believe. Trust him. And enter the city and partake of the tree. Let me pray. Lord, would you stir in us here in whatever place of trouble and temptation we find ourselves. I think probably for us, most of us, there is not much fire of persecution. There is, there is probably more often deadening drudgery and, and pain of struggle. But for each Christian here, as we struggle and face temptation and face threat, would you speak to each one here and call them with a sound of glory? Lift up their eyes and let them see the sparkling walls of the coming Jerusalem. Let them see it, Lord. Make the words here and the images here and the pictures, make, make them real. Take them out of the realm of, of interesting stuff to think about and put them in the realm of coming hope. Treasure worth worth seeking out. And for those here, Lord, who at the present moment don't have a stake in that city, would you show them the goodness of it and the glory of it and their need for it? Draw them onto it. Call them to come to Christ to have their robes washed in his blood. Lord, bless your people. Work faith into us. And take us home. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.